Welcome to Episode 5 of Final Argument, The Disappearance of District Attorney Ray Grikar. And I want to dedicate this episode to a very special person who figured prominently in Ray Grikar's life. His name was Bob Buner, and he died this past September. He was the retired district attorney of Montour County, Pennsylvania. He had been a peer, a friend, and a colleague of Mr. Grikar for many years. And when Grikar went missing, Bob Buner was the man who led the charge to get to the bottom of what happened to him. Bob had been a district attorney for 20 years. Bob was a kind and compassionate man, a wonderful family man, and someone who had a strong moral compass. I think his North Star was his passion for service to the community and his beloved hometown of Danville, Pennsylvania. Bob was a source for me on my reporting for this for 10 years. He was always generous with his time when I needed to ask him questions, and over 10 years I had a lot of questions for Bob about Ray Grikar and the investigation into his disappearance. Bob was always there for me and we held each other's counsel. Bob and I had recently taped a Nancy Grace Crime Stories episode before he died. By the time the show aired this past August, Bob and I had already decided we were going to hold a press conference in Pennsylvania, similar to the one he had held after Grikar had disappeared. And he had taken a lot of flack from former Attorney General Tom Corbett for that previous press conference. Bob said that he thought it was inexcusable that Corbett didn't do more to find out what happened to one of his own. Anyway, Bob was compiling a list of media he would be reaching out to. He was looking at October dates for us to have the press conference. Shortly after that, I got the phone call from one of Bob's friends And the news of his death was a shock for me, for all of us who knew Bob. He had been enjoying robust health for quite some time. In recent years, he had battled and had beat cancer, and Bob was living a good life. When I got the call about his death, I was shocked and I was filled with sadness, as I know his family and friends were. The last conversation I had with Bob was when he said to me, Rebecca, Keep going, keep going, keep going on this case. That's just the way he said it. He advised me to contact the FBI to let them know that I was coming into Pennsylvania this past October. He told me to tell them that I was going to be in the state working on this story and where I would be staying, etc. He had never made that kind of suggestion before as I traveled in and out of Pennsylvania these past 10 years working on this. I remember thinking at the time it seemed to be a little over the top to call the FBI, but I didn't want to argue with Bob because I figured he had his reasons for telling me that. We wrapped up our phone call and he said, I'll see you soon and next time lunch is on me. He laughed when he said it because he wanted me to know he remembered it was his turn to pick up the tab next time. Bob Buner is gone now. But I'm going to do what he told me to do. I'm going to keep going. And Bob, this is dedicated to you. Thank you for your public service and for your help on my reporting. I will miss you. 
Rest in peace, my friend. For this episode, I'm going to play an interview I recently did with one of the last people to see Ray Gricar alive. But before I go into that, let me take a little time to review and look at what we know so far about this case. Gricar was nine months from retirement, having served four terms as the district attorney in Center County, Pennsylvania, when he got up one morning at the house he shared with his girlfriend and he told her he was going to take some time off that day. And then later, he called her to say he was on the road, taking a drive, and he would see her later that evening. He drove 65 miles out of his jurisdiction into Union County, Pennsylvania, where he is eventually seen by a number of people in and around the town of Lewisburg. They see him in and out of his red and white Mini Cooper, which, remember, in 2005, was a model of car that was just beginning to gain popularity. It was rare to see them. In fact, only three Mini Coopers were registered in the state at that time. So we know that Ray Gricar's car stood out wherever he went. Anyway, he doesn't come home that night. And finally, his girlfriend, Patty Fornicola, calls a Belfont police officer. In fact, she knows pretty much all of those Belfont cops because she, like Gricar, both work for the county. She works at the courthouse with Gricar as a victim advocate. Patty doesn't know what to think. She's very worried. So I could understand her reaching out to a local cop. But what she doesn't know is that some of the members of the Belfont Police Department are at a party that night. She doesn't know that this party is going on and that a lot of them are drunk. But to their credit, at least they told her to call 911, and she did. But by this time, Ray Gricar has been gone from the bed they shared together in Belfont for 16 hours. 36 hours after Patty calls 911 to report him missing, the state police find Gricar's Mini Cooper sitting alone in a parking lot in Lewisburg. It is locked. The state police take the car to their local barracks and they process the inside of it. The car has been wiped clean on the inside with only a partially smudged fingerprint found on a water bottle in the back seat and the fingerprint is not useful at all. They can't read it. By the next day, a search begins by land and water, meaning the Susquehanna River. Gricar's car was found not far from the river. Several months after he goes missing, press releases begin coming out of his county. The cops are running down every lead, every tip that comes in. Belfont police are leading the investigation now with state police assisting. His laptop is found several months later partially submerged on the banks of the Susquehanna River, not far from where his car was found abandoned. Its hard drive has been removed. A few months after that, the hard drive to the laptop is also found on the banks of the Susquehanna River, partially submerged. It's waterlogged 
and damaged beyond repair. Still, no trace of Grikar, and the trail is getting cold. At this point, and for many months and years afterward, police do not consider that he may have been murdered. They focus on the possibility of Grikar taking off with another woman. Then it changes to the theory of suicide, and then the theory that he just decided to walk away from his life. To this day, it remains one of the mysteries of this case. Why was murder never really put on the table? With this podcast, I am showing that the investigation into foul play was tamped down by the same people who gave the public a steady diet of misinformation and red herrings to keep them from getting an idea that someone may have murdered Ray Grigar. And those same people are still around today. Think about that for a minute. It's very likely that the people that conspired to keep a lid on a murder investigation are still around. Some of them are still in power. Some are retired and no doubt resting easy because they think they are in the clear now. But are they? So let's get to this interview. This is with a woman named Jennifer Snyder. She worked at the Packwood House Museum in Lewisburg for 17 years in an administration position. And on Friday afternoon, April 15th, 2005, the day Ray Grigard disappeared, Jennifer Snyder saw something as she sat at her desk looking out the window at the Packwood House Museum. The police came to see Jennifer several days after she called them to report what she had seen. She's really never talked to the press or given interviews until now. Here's our conversation. So Jennifer, in April of 2005, you were working for the Packwood House Museum in Lewisburg, is that correct? Yes. So tell us just a little bit about the Packwood House Museum, just to get a context for this story. Go ahead. It's a small historic house museum in Lewisburg, uh, and it features antiques, textiles, artwork from a woman who was born and raised in Lewisburg. All right. So I've been to this museum, and it's on this beautiful leafy street in Lewisburg. And what did you do for the Packwood House Museum? I was the assistant to the director, so it was an administrative position. And as this administrator, um, did you have a lot of contact with the public? Oh, yes. I was the first person they would see when they would walk in the door. I see. And as I recall, the door to this museum faces Water Street, right? Yes, it faces Soldiers Park. Soldiers Park is the beautiful little parklet across the street, and right on the other side of that is the Susquehanna River. Yes. So if the first person they see when they come into the museum, a visitor, would be you, you would be close to the entrance, is that right? Yes. At that time, the desk that I sat at was right inside the door to the left. And was that near a window? Yes. Yes, there was a window to my back that I often would turn around and, and watch people walking on the sidewalk. So you were close enough to the street that you could see them get out of their car and you could tell if someone was 
on their way into the museum. Is that correct? Yes. So let's go back to April 15th, 2005. Jennifer, you're, you're at your desk at the Packwood House Museum? Were you sitting at your desk or were you standing at the front door? Do you recall? I think I was sitting at my desk, um, probably conversing with our volunteer who was there for the day, a regular that would come in on Fridays. And you saw something when you looked out the window. Yes. Tell me what you saw, Jennifer. I saw a red Mini Cooper pull up with a, an older man sitting in the driver's seat. And I took note of it because it was an unusual car and an unusual color. Now, was that on the street in front of the museum? Yes, there were three parking spaces along the street there. And he had pulled into the third space, which would be the furthest in from Market Street. So you see this car show up. What was your first impression when you saw that car? Um. It was just different. Um, I hadn't really seen a Mini Cooper around before. Plus, it was red, so I took note of it. Um, he looked like the type that might be coming into the museum, you know, dressed kind of business casual, uh, definitely of the right age. You know, we saw a lot of uh, older folks, uh, middle-aged folks, especially during the day. This wasn't a place for the Bucknell students to hang out, in other words. I mean, they, they would come in, but not <laughs> as much as the older folks would. Of course. So you're looking out the window and you see this red and white Mini Cooper show up. You probably didn't even know it was a Mini Cooper at the time. You just thought it was an unusual car, right? Yeah. And it sounds to me like something like this was not uncommon in the sense that from your vantage point, you could see a car drive up, you could size up the individual and say, yeah, they might be somebody coming into the museum today, right? Correct. So when you saw this man, first thing you notice is the car, and then you kind of give him a look. By this time, has he stepped out of the car yet, or are you still seeing him through the driver's side window? Do you remember? still seeing him through the driver's side window. So when you saw this person in the car through the driver's window, did you notice if he was wearing sunglasses? I don't think so. I don't remember seeing sunglasses at all on him, but I'm, I couldn't say for, for sure that he wasn't wearing them. So after you initially saw him, what did you do? Did you go to the door to see if he might be coming in, or do you remember what you did after that? I don't remember exactly what I did, but I'm sure I turned around and went back to doing whatever I had been doing, whether it was talking with the volunteer or answering the phone or doing some sort of paperwork. And you sort of forgot about him. That was it. So interesting looking car, middle-aged guy, looks like he could come in, but you get back to work. Right. But then you saw something else. What was that? Well, um... I'm not sure how long after that it was, not too long, um, but long enough to notice that he had been gone. When I turned around again, he was in the first parking space. And what drew my attention was that he would either have had to have driven around the block and stopped again or reversed two spaces, which I thought was odd. 
Well, let me ask you this. From the time you first saw him until the time you saw him again, I just want to see if I'm clear on something. You might have looked out the window again at some point, and he wasn't there at all? No car at all? Correct. Okay, so then you see the car again. Correct. So did you see him again when you saw the car the second time? I'm not sure. I'm guessing that you just saw the car, you noticed the car again because it was unusual. Yes, and it had moved. And it had moved. So take me through that. The car is parked in one space, and then there's a period of time where you don't see him, and then you see the car again. And now it's parked two spaces up from where it was parked before, right? Yes. Do you remember how long between those two times? Do you think it was a few minutes? Could it have been an hour? Could it have been a couple of hours? I want to say that it was in minutes, but longer minutes. I don't know if it was half an hour, but it was you know, enough time for me to be doing something else and then realize, oh, he's gone, and then doing something else, and then, oh, he's back, and in a different spot. That's odd. If the car, if the Mini Cooper could only have been parked in one of three spaces, and you didn't see a car there at all, that would mean that he had to have left the area. Yes. But then, sometime later... You see the car again. Now it's parked two spaces back from where it was, right? Correct. So from the time you first see the car to the time you see that car parked two spaces back from where it was originally, give me an idea of how much time do you think that was? No more than 45 minutes. All right. No more than 45 minutes. In that period of time, do you recall about what time of day that was? I want to say it was around midday, but I don't I couldn't say for sure. So now you see the car's back. And is he in the car, this man? Um, I think so. Did you ever see this man outside of the car? Yes. Tell me about that. He was walking in the park and it almost seemed like he was pacing back and forth. And it seemed like he was talking to himself. Was he closer to the street or was he closer to the river when he was pacing? Do you remember in the park? Closer to the street. When you say closer to the street, to the curb, let's let's say, you know, if you had to eyeball it, was he 10 feet from the curb, 20 feet, 50 feet from the curb? No more than 20 feet from the curb. And you see him pacing back and forth. Yes. And he's talking. You can tell that. Yes. But you can't hear anything. Correct. Because you're inside the Packwood House Museum. (laughs) Now he's pacing back and forth. Is he taking, you know how some people pace like they go back and forth maybe just a few feet or they pace the length of the room or you know what I'm saying when they're back and forth they're talking what 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 kind of pacing was it and how fast was he going do you remember or was it slow was it casual it seemed like he was waiting for someone it seemed casual as if he would be pacing the room uh so probably no more than I don't know 10 to 20 feet back and forth a little bit how long do you think you observed this Just a couple minutes. 
just enough to realize it was the man who had been in the red car. And you're sure it was the man in the red car? Yes. And how do you know that was the same man? I mean, look, you know, you've got a man pacing and you've got a red car sitting there, Jennifer. But how? <laughs> you're putting them together? How, how are you doing that at this point? When you're looking at it, you're just assuming or, or did you recognize something he was wearing and say, oh, yeah, I saw him. He was in the car. Was that the way it was? I recognized him from being in the car. I mean, when, when he was parked out there, he was only a street's width apart from the window. Our building is right up to the sidewalk. So I was looking directly into the street. We can often see people sitting in their cars when they're waiting to pull out onto Market Street. Now, let me ask you this. When you saw this man pacing back and forth, let me put it to you this way. Would you have a concern at this point watching this person? Would you have wanted to go over and say, is everything okay? Um, You know what I'm saying, Jennifer? Have I given you enough context? Yeah, I mean, he was either clearly waiting for somebody somewhat impatiently or... He, I suppose he could have been lost. I mean, we at that point, it had grabbed our attention, and we were watching him because it was just unusual. Now, when you say it had grabbed our attention, was this the volunteer? Yes, and also um, my boss at the time, um, she would have been in and out of the main office, and she had seen him as well. Was it a case of somebody saying, hey, there's that car again. Look at that guy. Yeah. Is that something you said or did somebody else say it? It could have been any of us. Uh, We often would spend a lot of our time watching the goings on in the park, whether it was people walking a dog or sometimes on weekends there would be weddings or people taking photos. Sure. It's a good place to people watch. Sure. It's a beautiful park. Yes. Now, you described it as maybe being impatient. How could you tell? What was his demeanor? Well, to me, just the pacing was what made me think he was impatient. Like he was waiting for somebody walking back and forth, back and forth. Was he doing anything else with his hands? As I said, he was talking to, we thought he was talking to himself. But he also may have been gesturing with his hands like he was talking to someone else. But there was nobody there, so that's why we were confused. Is it possible that he was on a cell phone talking? At the time, it would not have occurred to us. But now, with today's technology, yes, I would say he probably had an earpiece or something. Did he at any time have his hand up to his ear as if he was on a cell phone? No. So, Jennifer... You don't see him holding a cell phone or anything in his hand, but he's pacing back and forth, and he's talking, and it looks like he's talking to himself. Is that right? Yes. Did he at any time um, gesture with his arms or while he was talking? He may have. He may have been gesticulating while he was talking. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a possibility he might have had a Bluetooth in one ear? Yes. The job I had before Packwood was for an ad agency in Sunbury, and one time we had a client come in, 
and he was talking, and I thought he was talking to me and started to answer him saying, you know, like, what? I'm sorry. And he gestured at me and pointed to his ear, and here he had a Bluetooth earpiece on his ear, and that was the first I had ever seen that. So I would say that was 2004. So Friday, April 15th, 2005, Ray Ricardo's missing. You see him that Friday afternoon a couple of times. Yes. Yes. And then what happened Saturday, the day after? Saturday, we had a solo art exhibit installation, and the opening reception was Saturday evening from 6 to 9 or 10 p.m. So I was sitting at my desk right inside the door with a book while they were having their reception just to keep an eye on things. And it was starting to get dark when I noticed the blinking lights. And Water Street is often used as a shortcut, especially by the police if they have to go up to the hospital. So I remember hearing the acceleration of a car and seeing the lights and probably hearing the siren as the cars just started flying down the street to the parking lot at the street of shops. And about what time was this, Jennifer? Sometime between six and seven. So now you're, you're seeing these police cars flying down Water Street with the uh, sirens are blaring. And, and what did that do to the reception that was going on at the Packwood House Museum? Well, I mean, it it caused a pause, and everybody, you know, took notice, but they had music, they had beverages, it was loud. I mean, it didn't stop anything by any means. And the Packwood House Museum is only a couple of blocks away from the Street of Shops, this antique emporium where his car was found across the street from the Street of Shops. Yes. It's two and a half blocks away. When did you find out that you had witnessed Center County's district attorney in front of your museum? I didn't realize it until I saw his picture in the newspaper on Sunday. So the Sunday paper comes out, and you look at it, and it's a front-page story, if I remember, right? I guess. (laughs) I don't remember. I just remember seeing it and running to the phone and calling my boss. <laughs> and what did your boss say? She agreed. We we both looked at the article together and were just absolutely floored that we had seen this man. What did you do then? We both agreed that we were going to call the police. Do you remember from the time you called the police till the time the police came to see you? Do you remember how much time that was? No, I don't. Uh, We're closed on a Monday, so it would have been a Tuesday at the very earliest. And do you remember if it was the Pennsylvania State Police or the Belfont Police that came to see you? It was Detective Zagani. Daryl Zagani of the Belfont Police Department. Yes. Did he meet you at the Packwood House Museum? Yes, he came to see us at the museum. And he took your report? Yes. Did he ever ask you to go outside and show him where this man was? No, I don't think so. I was able to point which parking space is we had seen the car in and just in general point to the area of the park we saw him in. 
you know, after you put two and two together and you realized you saw the missing district attorney and time went on and they don't find the guy and, and you know, year after year, um, do you ever think about him? Yes, I do. I often wonder about him. I like to follow true crime since then, and I often, you know, do a quick Google to see if anything's come up. Do you ever have a gut feeling on what might have happened? In the beginning, I felt like he had to have run off. I I thought either there was another woman or he just had had enough and wanted to get away. That was the beginning. Where are you now? I unfortunately think he is no longer with us. Well, okay. How do you think he died? Well, that I don't know. Um, DAs often make enemies, so it could have been anything from, you know, just some general criminal who had a problem with him to, well, you know, we're living in the conspiracy age. It could be anything. Do you remember um, that day... You know, you can see the river from the museum. Yes. And uh, at that time of year, early spring, there's not a lot of vegetation that's really in full bloom yet. So I'm guessing you could see, could you see the height of the river? You could see, you know. Yes, yes. Um, there's a lot of trees in the park, but in the spring, there's not a lot of leaves. So you can clearly see the water. And I remember sometime after he had disappeared, talking at a museum function with one of our board members, and she was kind of poo-pooing the notion that he would have jumped off the bridge to commit suicide because the water was so low that spring that he would have broken his legs and still been able to just wave to the shore saying, help, help. (laughs) Right. The Susquehanna River is... Uh, it's known for being a shallow river, uh, but it's a very swift river. And I think the Indian name translated means river that floods. But it wasn't flooding on April fifteenth, two 2005. No, it wasn't. And you could clearly see from the window of the Packwood House Museum that the water in the river was really shallow. Yes. Ray Grickar's disappearance is going down in history as one of the most famous missing persons cases in this country. How does it feel to know that you saw this guy and that you may have been one of the last people to see him? I guess I still feel a little bit of shock about that. And also sad that I wasn't really able to do anything to help him or to help help them find him. So now that we've talked about this, um, is there anything else that you want to tell me about, Jennifer, on that what happened that day or, or what you saw that day or around that time? Um, sometimes a part of me wishes that I had stopped and asked, you know, are you lost? Do you need help or, or something? You know, just interjected something, but I don't know if it would have made a difference or not. Well, you did say at one point during this interview that you wish you had been able to do more. What did you mean by that? Well, I wish that I would have asked him if he needed directions or if he needed help. 
Um, knowing what I know now, I'm not sure that that would have changed the outcome, but at least I would have felt like I had tried. Well, Jennifer, I want to tell you something. I think that you did everything right, first of all. You saw what you saw. You reacted like anyone else would. I mean, you, uh, when you ultimately saw this in the paper and you recognized his face, um, you called your boss, you called the police, uh, you spoke with the detective um, from the Belfont Police Department, and you gave him as much information as you could. And it was up to the police at that point to do their job. Um, so I think that what you need to remember is that you did your part. And I still believe this case is solvable. And I still believe that testimony such as yours is really important in this whole case. And what I mean by testimony is uh, one of the objectives that I have for this is that a grand jury is called into the investigation of Ray Gricar's disappearance. And if a grand jury is called, will you testify? Yes, I, I think I would. I mean, I'm not ashamed of anything I've done or I, I would want to help in any way I could. I thought so. I think you've been a big help so far. And I don't want you to feel any kind of, you know, what if or shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? Uh, because right. you're one of the people that stepped up in this investigation. Well, where do we go from here, you ask? But one thing I want to mention first is that a few days before my last trip into Pennsylvania, I received a death threat by phone. I was told later it was done from a burner phone. It was specific, and it gave a day when it would happen. It was the day I was to fly into Pennsylvania. It was traumatizing. I immediately called my local FBI office and reported it. That set off a chain of events. I had to leave my home and go somewhere else for a night until we could get this all sorted out. Because I live in California, the FBI here told me they would be contacting the FBI in Pennsylvania. Over the next several days, I spoke to different agents about the story I'm working on. I asked their permission to share this with you, and they told me I could talk about it. I want to thank the FBI for being so supportive. As one agent said to me, quote, Don't worry, Rebecca. The FBI has your back. Unquote. I know Bob Buner would be glad to know that I did, indeed, end up calling the FBI. What they have done, or are doing at this point, I do not know. I reminded them that the FBI was originally called in on Grigar's disappearance, to gather his financial records and to check airplane manifests because that is all under federal jurisdiction. But then they left the investigation after that and I wanted to know why. But they would not comment on that. Okay, I get it. They're the feds. They don't talk. My hat is off to the FBI in any case. When I went back to PA after that death threat, I felt very safe. And I do believe that going forward on this, that the FBI really does have my back. 
Now, getting back to the interview, what do you think of Jennifer's recollections? Do you think it makes sense that Ray Ricard was on a phone call with a Bluetooth device in his ear? If that is true, it would mean that Grikar was using a burner phone because according to his cell phone records, which I have put on the website at raygrikar.com, on the day of his disappearance, there are no outgoing calls made from his cell phone after he made the call to his girlfriend, Patty Fornicola. If he had a burner phone, who was he talking to and why? We have Jennifer Snyder's observations of Mr. Grickar on that day, getting in and out of his Mini Cooper, parking and then leaving and coming back, and parking two spaces from where he was before. She sees him walking in the park across from the museum. Jennifer and her co-workers plainly see that he's pacing back and forth. She describes him as looking like he was waiting for someone. And he's talking while he's pacing, but she doesn't see him on an actual phone. But there was another eyewitness to Grikar that afternoon, also in Lewisburg, besides Jennifer Snyder. She sees Grikar, and she told me that after she saw Grikar's picture in the paper and the news of his disappearance, she recognized him as the man that had come into her store on Market Street in Lewisburg in the early afternoon on April 15, 2005. Now, her store is only four blocks from the Packwood House Museum. She had just come back from a late lunch when she said he came into her store and as he walked past her, she said hello to him. She said he put his hand up to his ear and covered it and shook his head as if to say no, like, don't bother me, I can't hear. And then he walked to the back of her store and remained there for a couple of minutes, pacing around with his hand up to one ear. She told me she thought at first it could have been a hearing-impaired person and that she said she wanted to remain polite, so she didn't try to engage him again. Then she observed him walk to the front of her store and he went to the window that faced Market Street. She said he stared out the window for a minute, looking west on Market Street. Then he turned around and walked out. I put this shop owner's observations and the approximate time she saw him together with what Jennifer Snyder and her co-workers saw as they observed him from their vantage point inside the museum that day. Do you think it's possible that when Jennifer looked out the window and saw that he had moved his car and left, that that's when he went to the woman's shop? I mean, the timeline fits. So Grikar leaves the store, and that's when I think he returned to where he had been a short time before. Now he's back in front of the Packwood House Museum, and that's when Jennifer and her co-workers see his Mini is parked again, this time in a different space, and he's out of the car, pacing back and forth in Little Soldier's Memorial Park, pacing, talking to himself. Or is he really on a phone call and using a Bluetooth device? And when he was in the store, and the owner told me he kept his hand up to one ear, was he really pressing it to his ear so he could hear better? And why did he leave the park? Why did he go into the store? Why did he stand there staring out the window, looking west on Market Street? Was he waiting for someone? Was he looking for someone? Did he go into the shop and proceed to the back where it was quiet so he could hear? 
And if so, who was he listening to? Let me tell you about a pattern that I saw as I looked at witness sightings and reports by people that saw Grikar on that Friday when he went missing. If you recall, I told you that he is seen going like a bat out of hell around 11 in the morning on April 15th. Then he calls Patty Fornicola after that to say he's taking the rest of the day off and he's on a drive. After his call to Patty, and according to his cell phone records, Grikar does not make or receive a single call that day on his county-issued cell phone. The only calls he received are the ones that Patty made that night when she didn't know where he was. The call he makes to Patty is the last call he makes on that phone, the same one that is found inside the cup holder of the Mini Cooper that police find abandoned on the night of April 16, 2005. That's it. No more calls from his cell phone once he calls Patty. But a couple of hours later, he's observed pacing and talking to himself. He's then seen in a shop a few blocks away with his hand up to his ear. And when the shop owner tries to engage him, he has his hand up to his ear and shakes his head at her as if to say, no, don't talk to me. She remembered that. Why did he do that? Was he listening on a wireless device to someone who was talking to him? Remember, Bluetooth technology was already available in 2005. With everything I told you so far about Mr. Grigar, do you really think he was talking to himself? He had no known medical issues, either physical or mental. Are we suddenly to believe that he has gone over the edge and has somehow lost his grip on reality? Throughout that day, on April 15th, Grikar is seen in and around the Lewisburg area and there is no pattern to his movements. He's on Route 192, then he's on Water Street, then he's seen in the shop on Market Street, then he's spotted in the Antique Emporium, the Street of Shops. At one point, he's seen up on Route 15 in Lewisburg. Eventually, his car is found abandoned across from the street of shops, but there's so many sightings of him. They're so random, all of them, and he's on the move a lot. Do you think this sounds like a man who's trying to run away from his life? If so, why isn't he getting the hell out of there? Why is he all over the map in the Lewisburg area? Is he being told to go here? Then go here. No, now Oh, no, come over here. Yeah, that's right. Go here next. You know, if you're really trying to take someone off their game, or if you're trying to confuse or catch someone off guard, the first thing one might do is start with what I think happened in this case. Someone contacted Ray Grikar and told him to come to Lewisburg that day to a particular location, the Water Street area, specifically the park area the area where the street of shops are. And of course, if you're luring Mr. Grikar into a trap, your plan must involve him being seen near a body of water. In this case, on April 15, 2005, it was the Susquehanna River. And the day before, after Grikar left a prison board meeting in Center County, he traveled to a body of water then. It was Raystown Lake in the neighboring Huntington County. He was seen at the lake by a doctor and his wife who were there that day. 
They later realized they had seen the Center County DA when they saw his picture in the paper. I think the person or persons behind his disappearance made sure Ray Grecar was being seen near bodies of water, especially if they wanted the police to think that Ray Grecar had committed suicide by drowning himself the way his brother Roy had done in 1996. And his brother's suicide was not a secret. Plenty of people who worked with Ray Grecar knew about that. So who came up with the plan to make it look like Grecar had committed suicide, just like his brother had? What a beautiful red herring that was, don't you think? And that's where I'm going to leave you for now. Thinking about red herrings, were there other red herrings? Oh, I think there were several. My next episode pulls them all out, and I will explain what those red herrings were and why they work so well to keep everyone, including law enforcement, looking in many different directions, all at the same time, but never, never really in the right direction. So we're almost there, trust me. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Final Argument, where I pull back the flap of the tent and reveal the rest of the pieces of this puzzle. I promise you, I really believe you're going to see how this all fits together. So stay tuned. I am going to keep going. And thank you again for listening.